Hello and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Chair Programme podcast. I'm Robert Ward, Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy here at the IISS. Here we are joined by experts, strategists and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. Just a note for listeners before we start, the transcript of this episode will also be available on the website. Today we're very excited and privileged to welcome three fantastic guests, Professor Sato Yoichiro, Aaron Connolly and Dr. Evan Laxmana to discuss Japan's relations with ASEAN countries. By way of introduction, Professor Sato Yoichiro is a professor at Ritsumeikan Asia Pacific University and is the Dean of the Department of the Graduate School of Asia Pacific Studies in Oita, Japan. From 2022 to 2023, Yoichiro was also a visiting senior research fellow at Yusof Ishak Institute of Southeast Asian Studies. He's been writing extensively on international relations and defense security matters in the Indo-Pacific. His recent works include a book, The United States in the Indo-Pacific, An Overstretched Hegemon, which was published in 2023. Welcome to the podcast, Yoichiro. Aaron Connolly is the IISS Senior Fellow for Southeast Asian Politics and Foreign Policy. Aaron leads IISS research on Southeast Asian political change and foreign policy. Based in our Singapore office, Aaron has also been leading some pioneering research on conflict in Myanmar. Aaron's book on the Myanmar conflict, and the Delphi volume, IISS Delphi volume, will also be published soon. Uh, welcome, Aaron. Dr. Evan A. Laxmana is a IISS Senior Fellow for Southeast Asian Military Modernization. Evan's research expertise lies in military change and innovation, civil military relations, and Southeast Asian defense and foreign policy. He's also the editor of the 2024 IISS Asia-Pacific Regional Security Assessment, which will be released around about the time of this year's Shangri-La Dialogue. Evan's latest work is called Introduction, Partnership or Polarization, Southeast Asian Security Between India and China. Welcome, Evan. And thank you, all three of you, for being here to unpack Japan's relations with ASEAN. Let's begin our discussion with Japan's shifting diplomacy in ASEAN. In December 2023, Japan's relationship with ASEAN marked an important milestone when ASEAN gathered in Tokyo for the commemoration summit to mark 50 years of ASEAN-Japan relations. The outcome of the summit saw a shift from the traditional relationship of Japan as a donor country and ASEAN receiving assistance to one more of a relationship of equals, elevating the concept of co-creation. I saw in The Economist there was a quote the other day from a Japanese diplomat who said, we're cooperating as equals now. So the relationship between Japan and ASEAN is certainly changing. Yoichiro, looking back at the Japan-ASEAN relationship over the past 50 years, the relationship and the surrounding environment have changed drastically, especially since the Fukuda Doctrine was introduced in 1977, which in effect attempted to reset relations between Japan and ASEAN. Over this period, how do you think Japan's diplomacy towards ASEAN has changed? Initially, Japan refrained from getting itself involved in security affairs and paid uh, the highest, utmost respect for uh, internal uh, sovereignty of each Southeast Asian countries. This is gradually changing. I would argue that China is not the only factor, but it's one of the uh, more important factors. Japan's uh, now discussing security. In order to discuss security, Japan has to stand on an equal footing rather than uh, trying to talk to Southeast Asian countries from uh, the position of the previous donor status. 
interesting point you made about China not being the only factor. Could you unpack what the other factors are in your view? I think、uh, the most important part is Japan's relative strength has diminished so far. As you pointed out, the yen's very weak. If you look at the countries like Indonesia, the middle class is growing. Japan, on average, is getting really poor on a per capita basis. When you look at the Southeast Asian countries with bigger populations, you actually see a you know, large population of、uh, pretty rich people. I feel that every day because I, you know, our university accepts the students from many Southeast Asian countries. So I think that's a kind of important factor in addition to the rise of China. One of the significant statements from the 2023 commemorative summit was a stress on the rules based order. This, as we know, is a, has been long been a refrain of Japanese diplomacy. A strengthening cooperation in maritime security through Japan's free and open Indo Pacific concept and, and the mainstreaming of the ASEAN. Outlook on the Indo Pacific were also emphasized. How is Japan's strong push for the rules based order viewed in ASEAN? And I sort of ask this question against the background of all the stresses on the rules based order in, we see in the conflict, well, Russia's war against Ukraine, and, and clearly in the Middle East at the moment as well. If you narrowly interpret what Japan means by rule based order, To mean that it's about respect for the law of the sea and its principles, then I think most Southeast Asian countries are just fine with what Japan is trying to do, which is to uphold this very important international law as a way of conducting international relations in this region. If you have a broader interpretation of what rule of law, Might mean, s especially in the domain of domestic politics, then some Southeast Asian countries feel uncomfortable. But of course, Japan doesn't try to do that. It's deliberately ambiguous in that sense. Aaron, I, I can see you nodding there with Yorichiro's comments on the sort of domestic politics in ASEAN. Is there anything you'd like to add to what、uh, Yorichiro has just said? And also, specifically, Myanmar wasn't invited to the commemorative summit. Considering the issues, sort of good reasons why, why that was the case, but is, is there any special significance that we should attach to this apart from the sort of obvious one? It's not really just about domestic politics for ASEAN member states. It's also about the way that Japan and its US ally, and more broadly the West, speaks about the rules based order. The feeling within some ASEAN member states, this is really code for a Western led order. And so there's a discomfort with that language as a result of that. Kind of vibe that the language gives off. And so it is really an achievement of Japan to be able to get this language into the summit deliverables. But on the specific question of Myanmar, you know, this is really a decision that would have been made by the ASEAN chair, by Indonesia. It has been the ASEAN leader's decision since late 2022, since the Phnom Penh summit, that Myanmar should not be represented at ASEAN summits at the political level. And they've observed that norm. Internally, and then also in their meetings with their dialogue partners, including Japan. So, even though the summit was hosted in Tokyo, that was ASEAN leaders' decision, which I think shows actually some evolution in how ASEAN thinks about these issues of, you know, say, rule of law. The principle of non interference is not really as sacrosanct as it's often made out to be. And ASEAN has responded to the situation in Myanmar by effectively suspending the leader of the Myanmar junta 
from its summits, which is an unprecedented action on the part of ASEAN member states. In addition, there were discussions at the Commemorative Summit, discussions on uh, economic cooperation. Japan and ASEAN have been increasing their economic ties, especially in the areas such as green technology and digitalization. Yuichiro, considering ASEAN's combined GDP will overtake that of Japan by 2030, and as you said earlier, considering the sort of the wealth that's now amassing it in ASEAN, what do you think Japan is seeking from this economic relationship? It's a good news because economy is a win-win thing. As ASEAN economies grow, Japan can actually diversify its current heavy trade dependency on China and seek new market for its advanced technological products in Southeast Asia, which is really good. But Japan needs to keep its technological edge up. There's a very strong complementarity between the ASEAN economy and the Japanese economy, the green technology and IT-related technology, where Japan still holds some advantages. Japan can find new markets in Southeast Asia. One of the reasons for strengthening economic cooperation between Japan and, and ASEAN seems to me also linked to potentially the uh, intensifying security competition with China in the region. From an ASEAN perspective, given how complex this environment is now and all these overlapping strategic issues that the countries are having to cope with, how do you think ASEAN views Japan's navigation of this environment? Is, is Japan doing what ASEAN would like it to do, promote stability, for example? From the perspective of many in in Southeast Asia, Japan for a long time has been not just a trusted economic partner, but also a potentially close security partner as well. Therefore, uh, the relationship, uh, for example, in the case of Indonesia, for a long time, Indonesia has never sent its military cadet anywhere overseas but to Japan. The degree of of security relationship, I think, is, is worth noting as well. But the secondly... I think when it comes to Japan's sort of broader geopolitical role between US and China, I think this is still a bit of a question mark because for a long time, the reason why Japan is such a trusted economic partner as well as a potential security partner is because when Japan talks to many in Southeast Asia, it is less about competition with China. It's more about pragmatic, concrete cooperation, uh, things that we can work with with Japan. I am worried that if, let's say, Japan increasingly becomes much more in a confrontational position or posture against China, that Japan could be seen as too much aligned with the United States, that some of that trust that Japan has built over the years could potentially erode. Because whether we like it or not, many Southeast Asian states would still view the nature of U.S.-China competition in general as potentially destabilizing for the region. But so far, as we've seen in the summit, the strategic capital that Japan has built over decades remains uh, very much in play. It's very much shaping the relationship, and it's it's very much is articulated in the trust that many uh, in Southeast Asia has. And certainly with Japan's new overseas security assistance program, that I think will be uh, further tested as well. I do think, however, that when it comes to that particular issue on security assistance, this is where I think Japan's policy infrastructure uh, methods of engagement on education and training on defense, uh, arms sales. These are all things that are very new, and we're not really sure how Japan will proceed with Southeast Asia in that sense. But I think it's it's certainly the case that Japan remains a trusted security partner at this point in time. And Aaron, you wanted to come in. Evan's exactly right to say that as this evolves and as, as Japan becomes 
seem to align more closely with the United States. It may lose some of the goodwill that it has built up in Southeast Asia. But the flip side of this is that the way that Japan has operated in the past has left it really a singularly inefficient converter of that goodwill and that capital, the investment that it puts into Southeast Asia, whether through ODA or through trading houses investment, a singularly inefficient converter of that capital into political capital. So when we think about Chinese investment in Southeast Asia, it's a clear to everyone that that investment comes with strings attached. There is an expectation on China's part that if you accept this investment, then you should align yourself with China on some big geopolitical issues like the South China Sea. When that investment comes from Japan, I should say, there's no similar expectation. It's very difficult for Japan because Japan isn't as coercive a power as China is to convert that capital into political capital, to get Southeast Asian countries to align with it on big issues. And I think you know, the best example of this is Cambodia. Uh, no country has a better relationship with the Hun Sen government and now the Hun Manet government than Japan. This is apparent in the way that Hun Sen talks about Japan with, with deep affection, which exceeds any, any uh, description that he might give of China. But Cambodia has become much closer to China over the last 20 years, despite Japan's concerns uh, about that. By way of another example that's not investment related, you know, Japan holds the pen on the Cambodia resolution in Geneva at the UN Human Rights Council and seeks to weaken that resolution every year uh, as a way of demonstrating its goodwill towards Hun Sen's government in Cambodia. I've spoken to Japanese diplomats who are very frustrated by this process because they feel like it should deliver some real results in the relationship with Cambodia, but it doesn't seem to do that. In the case of Indonesia, the really big country in, in Southeast Asia, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with a senior official in Indonesia who's been very involved in their big infrastructure push over the last 10 years under the Jokowi administration. I asked him if he was not concerned that by being seen to be moving closer to China over those 10 years, that they would lose out on Japanese investment, uh, given that Japan is such a big investor in Indonesia. And he laughed at me and he said, you know, Aaron, uh, we're not concerned about that. We know that we have to do certain things to attract Chinese investment, that we have to do certain things on geopolitics. Uh, there's no similar expectation from Japan. The only thing we need to do to attract increased Japanese investment is to continue attracting Chinese investment because we know that Japan wants to keep up. And so he thought of Japanese investment almost as matching dollars for what they were doing for China on the geopolitics. And in a sense, Japan was actually working against itself by investing so assiduously in Jokowi's infrastructure boom. And so I think that's a real challenge for Japanese statecraft is how do you convert that that capital, which is really significant. Japan is a big investor in ASEAN member states into political capital. And I think we saw at that summit in Tokyo last month, a little bit of a shift on some of the language, but nothing like the kind of shift that China gets out of its investment in ASEAN. Two great comments. This is to you, Yorichiro. One from Evan here and one from Aaron. Evan's Japan's strategic capital is at risk in the region for the reasons that Evan's just described. And then Aaron talked about a phrase that I might use myself, Aaron, in, the, in going forward as an inefficient, Japan as an inefficient converter of goodwill into political capital. Yorichiro, how would you respond to these charges from Evan and Aaron? Perhaps my view about Japan's interest is uh, more liberal than uh, I think Evan and Aaron. I feel that there's a strong convergence of strategies between Southeast Asian countries and Japan. Nobody wants the U.S.-China competition to intensify further. 
because that will force those countries into choosing a side. Despite the US Japan security alliance, you know, Japan's economic dependency on China is so heavy, and US willingness to open up its market and engage in true free trade is just so unclear. <laughs> Given that, Japan needs to balance those two relationships, one with the US, one with China, just like many Southeast Asian countries are trying to do. So, in that sense, Japan is an enabler of the Southeast Asian hedging strategies. Sure, Southeast Asian countries take full advantage of that, as Aaron pointed out. <laughs> Japanese are not that frustrated about it. I think they have kind of resigned themselves to, to be playing that role in Southeast Asia. Moving on to the security environment in ASEAN and then thinking about Japan's security policies towards the region. China's coercion, military and otherwise, is being felt in many parts of the region and seems to be sort of polarising ASEAN politically between those that are more favourable to China on the one hand and those that are a bit more forward-leaning to the US and its allies on the other. Perhaps one could include Philippines and Vietnam in the latter category. Countries like Laos, for example, Cambodia, rely on China militarily and economically. Evan, with Laos as the chair of ASEAN in this, this year, how, how do you think ASEAN is going to approach the security concerns? Well, first of all, I think ASEAN is the absolutely unsuited platform to discuss some of these security concerns, not because that it's not appropriate, but because the framework of ASEAN as a regional grouping is not designed to solve security problems. The, re the framework of ASEAN as a regional grouping, whether it's through the ASEAN Defense Ministers meeting, ASEAN Defense Ministers meeting plus, uh, the ASEAN Regional Forum, these are all designed to be process-oriented mechanism in which the idea of norms exercise and communication is key, which means they're not immediately clear how they can solve issues around the South China Sea with immediate impact. As we've seen when it comes to the South China Sea, certainly that process around the ASEAN-China Code of Conduct and negotiations have passed the two-decade mark now, and yet we are nowhere clearer in terms of stopping some of the current uh, maritime security flashpoints in that particular part of the world. So in that sense, I would say that Laos's chairmanship will be crucial in navigating issues around Myanmar. I think that remains very much high on the agenda and the extent to which ASEAN's five-point consensus on Myanmar can still remain the option moving forward or not. But uh, outside of Myanmar, issues around connectivity and economic integration is much higher in Laos's agenda. As we've seen from the initial statements at the foreign minister's retreat uh, recently, security concerns that are uh, hard power in nature or U.S.-China competition in nature are often brushed aside on platforms like, well, we have the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific, so we're fine. So I think in that sense, it is not the right way to think of ASEAN as a security provider if we are looking for problem solvers in terms of immediate security interests. I think this has to go back to the individual Southeast Asian countries if you want to address those respective security flashpoints. We've talked about Japan's innovations in defence policy, including the official security assistance, for example. Yorichiro, what role do you think Japan can play more broadly in security stabilisation in the region? 
for one, Japan has become yet another alternative source of arms supply and technology transfer for Southeast Asian countries. Japan's contribution will add to the development of indigenous capability in Southeast Asia, which should help Southeast Asian countries avoid being dependent on either US or China. So that's one contribution. The other contribution, I think, is some Southeast Asian countries are really threatened by China. They need to anchor very strong U.S. presence in the region. For them, having Japan do that job by creating a sort of minilateral coalitions, currently it's often described as Quad Plus, it could take the form of Quad minus India plus somebody else. In either case, Japan is a glue in that kind of minilateral configurations. U.S. cannot be the leader in creating minilaterals. So that's Japan's another contribution. Aaron, how do you think ASEAN members view Japan's security contribution? That's sort of an interesting image there from Yoichiro is Japan as glue in the region. I don't disagree with that. I think that that's true. But ASEAN member states are also realistic about Japan's capacity issues. You know, this is a very capable force when it comes to the SDF. It's not a force with a lot of capacity. And you know, sending the Izumo or the Kaga, the helicopter carriers, very capable helicopter carriers through the South China Sea once a year is not an alternative to partnership with other countries. And so I think you'll continue to see ASEAN countries, member states, looking toward a coalition, a minilateral coalition of countries to try and balance against the U.S. or China. And some of them are outside of the Philippines and increasingly Vietnam are really looking for third country partners. They are looking to partner with Europe as a, a third option. They're trying to make this aspiration that the region should be a multipolar a reality, even though they're grounded to the current reality, which is that this is a bipolar contest between the U.S. and China. And everyone else who plays a role in this contest is a rung below, or sometimes several rungs below where the US and China are. And so those choices remain rather invidious for most of the Southeast Asian countries, even as they seek to partner with countries like Japan. And Evan, you, you wanted to say something. On the more technical operational side of things, I do think when it comes to the official security assistance, as well as arms transfer and all of that, I think Japan is still quite behind compared to countries like South Korea and Australia when it comes to developing a policy infrastructure around offset policies, for example. To what extent can Japan's transfer actually improves on Southeast Asia's defense industrial basis are things that I don't think Japan has yet to develop the right engagement experience as well as policy infrastructure. Second, a lot of Japan's multilateral security roles in the past, for example, Japan was crucial in forming the Asian Chiefs of Coast Guard meeting that helps build the initial norms exercise and building around maritime law enforcement. And so Japan's HADR capacity and, and engagement and training was also very crucial for many Southeast Asian countries. So. What I'm trying to say is that Japan has a much broader role to play than just whether or not Japan can help some Southeast Asian countries potentially balance against or challenge or push back China. But I do think that when it comes to security assistance and defense industrial engagement, I think Japan is still uh, quite behind, uh, whether it's the role of ATLA itself, 
whether it's in terms of understanding the defense industrial landscape and procurement landscape, I think Japan has some homework to do. Any discussion of ASEAN has to mention ASEAN centrality, obviously very important within the grouping. But given the, in essence, I suppose, the zero-sum characteristics at the moment anyway of China-US competition, how does ASEAN ensure its centrality in this environment and members' unity? I suppose that's one for Aaron and Evan. And Yoichiro, how does Japan calibrate its policy with one eye on ASEAN centrality, given what to me seems like, obviously Japan and ASEAN have had a long history of working together, but Japan is very focused on the bilateral bits of relations within ASEAN. How does Japan work this into its policy as well? So perhaps Evan and Aaron on ASEAN centrality and then Yoichiro. With ASEAN centrality, from the perspective of ASEAN, which is always not the same with the perspective of external partners of ASEAN, is that what's important is the process. So ASEAN is designed as a convener of meetings, not always solver of problems. So if we define centrality as being able to solve security problems, whether it's our China Sea or Myanmar, I think we might be disappointed as far as outcomes are concerned. But if we define centrality as process, which is the ability of ASEAN to provide a venue, a meeting point for different countries, even if they are in competition with one another, like US and China, I think as long as that meeting remains present, as long as that highest level of convening power is still there, for example, the East Asia Summit, I think for ASEAN, that is centrality in practice, because what's important for ASEAN, as defined by its own charter, is that ASEAN continues to engage external powers for dialogue and for trust building and to make sure that they also are provided space to work on their own issues. We talked about the Quad earlier, but we forgot that the Quad also got solidified on the sidelines of ASEAN meetings as they met after the tsunami in 2004. In various meetings, U.S.-China discussions happened on the sideline of ASEAN meetings. The six-party talks on North Korea started at the ASEAN Regional Forum sidelines as well. So in that sense, there is still value for ASEAN uh, to play a role in, but that value relies in the credibility of their process, not in the outcomes that they solve. I think ASEAN is a more effective actor in terms of pursuing its interests than people often give it credit for partly because the expectations are too high, but, but also because the appreciation for what ASEAN has actually achieved is too low. And so when you think about getting Joe Biden to go to Cambodia in 2022 for an ASEAN summit, there's no other situation in which Joe Biden would have gone to Cambodia other than in the context of an ASEAN summit. And so it draws the attention of great powers in a way that only ASEAN would allow Southeast Asian states to do. At least at the margins, it allows Southeast Asian states to, through its kind of dialectic power, to get its interests addressed by the great powers. Just look, for instance, at how the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific has been, as ASEAN likes to say, mainstreamed. It's even referenced in official documents that ASEAN produces in its summits with China, which hates the Indo-Pacific language, but feels like it has to adhere to it in the context of ASEAN. Now, Evan, I think, has written very persuasively that ASEAN should be trying to do more through its outlook on the Indo-Pacific, that it's not a substantial enough document. But those are still diplomatic accomplishments that are only really possible for Southeast Asian states 
through ASEAN. And so we grade it on a, a standard that it doesn't aspire to. As Bilahari Kausakan, the Singapore ambassador, always likes to say, you have to accept that ASEAN is not a horse, it's a cow. But we also don't give it enough credit for what it's actually accomplished diplomatically over the last 20 years. And Yoichiro, how does Japan calibrate its policy with ASEAN centrality? The dilemma is that in order for the ASEAN to be effective, it has to be cohesive. But this cohesion is oftentimes not available. So the appearance of coherence is created by simply downgrading the various statements to the lowest common denominator among all members. That doesn't mean that there is no behind-the-scene diplomacy to pressure certain members. I think ASEAN has proven its utility when it came to uh, the issue of how to deal with Myanmar. I think the challenge will always be there. This kind of informal uh, behind-the-scene diplomacy and and face-saving for certain members if tougher measures need to be taken. I think ASEAN will continue to play that role. I think Japan very much understands that and appreciates it as well, so that Japan remains on the same sheet with key ASEAN member countries. China will always try to fish one or two states to side with it and try to disrupt ASEAN cohesion. It will be a challenge. Aaron, do you want to add something? I just wanted to echo something that Yuichiro said earlier about uh, Japan aligning itself with ASEAN, particularly in the way that it thinks about the US and China. I'm not sure that this is entirely true in all cases, but many ASEAN countries see themselves as seeking out a a third way between the United States and China. The Philippines really is the exception. Some would argue that Vietnam is increasingly an exception. I'm not sure that's right. And arguably, Cambodia is an exception in the way that it has aligned itself with China. But the other ASEAN member states, even including Myanmar, are really looking for a third way. And so a lot of times when we say that the problem with ASEAN is its lack of cohesion, there is real cohesion amongst that middle group within ASEAN, those eight countries or so that really want a third way, a non-aligned path through great power competition. And I think the reason we often don't appreciate this is because a lot of our conversation about ASEAN is really stuck in 2012. And this doesn't apply to anyone here on this podcast, but a lot of times if you go to think tank conferences in Washington, D.C., or even in the outskirts of the Indo-Pacific, in Delhi or in Canberra, there will be a discussion that suggests that maritime Southeast Asian countries are ready to align with the United States and its partners to stand up against China, and mainland Southeast Asian countries are aligning with China because of elite capture or because of geoeconomic interests. And I don't think that's right. It was right in 2012. It was certainly the accurate way to describe what happened at the 2012 Phnom Penh Summit when Cambodia disrupted ASEAN unity and refused to issue an ASEAN communique that year. But it's not really true anymore because ASEAN countries have coalesced around this third way through great power competition. We at the IISS, we don't identify by our nationalities, but I am American if you can't tell by my accent. And I think some of my American compatriots don't always want to appreciate this because It doesn't say great things about American statecraft over the last 10 years, where America really has lost an opportunity to form an incipient balancing coalition against China amongst maritime Southeast Asian countries, where it it was possible perhaps to see in 2012, Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Singapore aligning with the United States against China in the South China Sea on a position centered around the principles of international law. 
it's not really possible to see that anymore. Those countries, with the exception of the Philippines, are really much more focused on finding that third way through great power competition. So there is cohesion within ASEAN around that. That is why we see the statements that we see. It's not necessarily that it's lowest common denominator or it's that China is picking off mainland Southeast Asian countries to disrupt ASEAN unity. It's that there is agreement, the substantial consensus uh, within those eight middle ground countries of ASEAN around this non-aligned path through great power competition. That's a nice sort of nuanced way to move to our Japan memo questions, I think. So I, I saw everybody nodding to what uh, Aaron was saying there. So thank you for that addition there, Aaron. So we've got two questions that we always ask our guests. We get some great answers. So interested to hear what, you, what you're going to say. First question is whether you have book recommendations for listeners who wish to understand Japan more and you are allowed to recommend your own books. Yoichiro, because you are the, uh, the guest, would you like to go first? Sure. I, I have two books that I want to recommend, one of which involves myself. The first book is uh, Vose and Midford Editors, Japan's New Security Partnerships, Manchester University Press, 2018. It's been five years, six years since the publication. It's one of those books that first addressed Japan's new partnerships beyond the U.S.-Japan alliance. It's a very interesting book to read it in hindsight and see how much of that continued to move on the same trajectory since then. The other book, myself and Professor Sakai editors, Re-Rising Japan, 2017 by Peter Lang. In the same year, the Brad Grosserman published a book titled Peak Japan. <laughs> we always chat and say, you know, well, who, who predicted better? <laughs> in a sense, both are right. But again, you know, this was written in the very beginning of uh, Abe's active security policy. I think it's a good book in my own unbiased view <laughs> to read in hindsight. Fantastic. Thank you, Yoichiro. Evan, anything that you can recommend? I did my uh, PhD dissertation on, on Meiji Japan. And so books I've read on Japan came from that particular period because I was interested in how Japan could adopt Western military doctrines and training. So I'm not sure how, how relevant for a particular context. One book that stuck with me was, was by Danny Orbach about the rebellious imperial army at that period. And I always felt uh, reading the book by Danny on that period, there's a lot of broader points, not just on the sociological side of things in terms of modernizing, but also how the particular military culture around westernization and the realization that for Japan to be able to operate uh, in this particular environment requires Japan to be the best military at that age. And that means uh, Western uh, military. And I always find that historical understanding uh, from, from that period. Yes, it's not a straightforward process. There's a lot of internal politics within the military and within the country. Uh, but the notion that Japan can only be safe if it's measured against the best military at that point in time, I think has, has some resonance for some of 
what we see uh, in how Japan's military alliance with the United States work, but also for the rest of the region. When we talk about interoperability on the alliance, as we talked about uh, much earlier, there are remnants and, and echoes, at least for me, reading how Japan tried to modernize at that period in time. One of the wonderful things about this podcast is one finds out things about one's colleagues that one had no idea about. And I had no idea about your interest in Meiji Japan, Evan. So that's uh, another plus uh, from the Japan Memo podcast. Thank you. Aaron, over to you. If I could cheat and just recommend two, uh, the first one, I'm sure this has been done on this podcast before, is to recommend uh, your book, your Adelphi with Yukushino, Robert, on uh, Japan's geoeconomic statecraft, which I thought was a really complex but also nuanced way of looking at uh, geoeconomic statecraft. Some of the things in, in that book are, are things that I've drawn on for this conversation uh, today, so very insightful. But the, the second book I'd recommend is really the first book I read on Japanese politics, which has stuck with me ever since, uh, which was Jerry Curtis's The Logic of Japanese Politics, which I think was published in the late 1990s, possibly 2000, because it made a point that is, I think, broader applications. Early in the book, Professor Curtis says he doesn't like to use culture to explain any phenomena in Japanese politics, because it's possible to explain everything through culture once you open that door. And I think that's broadly applicable to understanding uh, politics in any society especially if we're not from that society originally. And so he argues throughout the book, there is a logic to Japanese politics. It's working along an internal logic that is comprehensible if you listen and try to understand what the actors in politics are trying to achieve. And I've always applied that to my own work, especially in Indonesian politics, where far too often analysts uh, resort to describing, you know, Javanese court culture and things like that. And so I think it's, it's an invitation to challenge ourselves to think with greater complexity about the societies they study, whether they're our own or somebody else's. Your check is in the post, Aaron. Thank you for that uh, endorsement <laughs> of our Adelphi. The final question, what do you think people often get wrong about Japan? I have three such cases. One is people have long argued that Japan cannot act strategically. Japan is a reactive state. Japan always told the U.S. foreign policy line. That argument was dominant for so many years. For a long time, I have argued against it. And of course, Japan faces limitations, but that doesn't mean Japan's not strategic. There is a logic, just as Aaron said. The other one is uh, overemphasis on pacifism. Sure, you know, the Japan's post-war pacifism did play a role, but it's declining. And also there are other explanations other than pacifism, which could explain Japan's limited defense posture throughout the post-World War II period. And now we are seeing changes. The pacifist argument people, they are very quiet nowadays. <laughs> the third argument I find problematic is those who overemphasize Japan's right-wing nationalism. Japan's active security posture is attributed to such a rising nationalism as such by certain left-leaning observers, and I find it problematic also. Abe's success was not in promoting the right-wing nationalist agenda, but promoting realist foreign security policy by basically containing his own ideologically based agenda in foreign policy. There are a lot of books written about Abe, 
and there will be more there will be some more balanced view on his accomplishments and the limitations thank you yoichiro I, on, on your second point i think it was i i wonder where also whether pacifism is actually quite the right word to describe japan's more anti-militarism that has been in the past but perhaps that's for another podcast but those are three great points thank you Aaron, I think you answered the second question in your first question. So uh, thank you for that. And I'll give Evan the last word. What's interesting, at least from the perspective of my own experience, as well as perhaps for some in Southeast Asia, is the perception that because Japan as a society tends to be more homogeneous than the rest of Southeast Asia, so presumably a Japanese, whether it's tourists or businesses or practitioners who work outside of Japan, particularly in Southeast Asia, will have trouble adjusting. My experience, as well as others, that has never been the case. I've seen many colleagues and friends from Japan, whether in the business side, on the think tank side, on the research side, they're always, I think, very expert at trying to understand the local culture, the local customs, and as, as well as uh, the local political and, and social environment. So despite what may be seen by some as a more homogeneous Japanese society, Japanese elsewhere outside of Japan is actually very, very adept and very good at trying to be part of their local communities wherever they are. And I think that's not always something that can be easily said about countries from outside of the region. Thank you, Evan. That brings us to the end of this episode of Japan Memos. A huge thank you from the Japan Share Program to Yoichiro, uh, Aaron and Evan. This has been a fantastically rich discussion. So many thanks. I think we could certainly go on for rather longer than we, we have done. So uh, just testament to your expertise and to the importance of the subject. And thanks also to our listeners for joining us on another episode of Japan Memo. If you have any comments or feedback, please contact us by email on japanchair, or one word, at iiss.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. From this season, as we said at the beginning, the transcript of each episode will, will be available on the website, so please check that out as well. For more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Chair Programme and by the S more broadly, including analysis by Evan and Aaron, of course, whose research is also on our website. You can find it all at www.iiss.org. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we actively share the latest news and analysis on everything Japan, geopolitics and more. You can find me at Robert Allen Ward. You can find Yoichiro Sato-sensei at Yoichiro Sato 2. You can find Aaron Connolly at at Connolly AL. And you can find Evan Laxmana at Evan Laxmana. Thanks again and see you next time.